0: this is loudspeaker
1: please don't go i need you so i hello everyone and welcome to feminist hot dog the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life Although I should probably consider revising that tagline for this season, we've been engaging with some really heavy topics that don't feel all that joyful, to be honest. And today's is not an exception. I'd like to issue a content warning, which is that we will be talking about women and suicide with my guest and also my friend, Sarah Schofield. But although this topic is very intense, I'm really happy we covered it because I learned so much And one of the most important things I learned from Sarah is the fact that we as a culture don't do a good job talking openly about suicide and that this actually puts people at greater risk for ending their own lives. My hope is that this episode makes a difference in some small way by opening a dialogue. And the other thing I wanted to say before we dive into our interview was that I have always struggled with how to reconcile the idea that suicide is preventable with the knowledge that it's no one's fault. In my mind, I'm like, well, if it's no one's fault, then who's supposed to be doing the preventing? And Sarah really opened my eyes about that too, because as you'll hear, the prevention strategies she discusses are very much grounded in systemic and social change. So like many of the issues we discuss on this show, this isn't something that can be solved at the individual level. But we can all become part of the solution by getting educated and putting pressure on policymakers and on the systems around us to listen to suicide prevention experts. She'll talk in some detail about how to get involved in that. So I'm going to get out of the way now because Sarah has so much good information to share that could literally be life-saving. Please listen and learn from my interview with Sarah Schofield. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on Feminist Hot Dog. It is really, really lovely to be back in touch with you. I'm so glad that we're doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You and I have known each other for a long time, but been out of touch for a few years. For um, our listeners, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? You've certainly done a lot of interesting things in your life and done a lot in the arts You are now an advocate, which we're going to talk about. We met through roller derby, which I don't know if you're still involved in that or not, but tell me a bit about you, you, your life, and how you describe yourself.
0: Yeah, as far as roller derby is concerned, I am not involved any longer. But yeah, you know, obviously that was a a big part of my life for a long time. Something that I think is is something that I really identify with as far as who I am is I'm a vocalist. And I sing in, in a band and have for about 20 years. And before that, I was um, a singer in um, school and college and, and studied music here in Eugene, where I live. So, so there's been a lot of music in my life. And, and as a singer, I have had the opportunity to do a lot of things with that and a lot of really kind of obviously like empowering events that when you get uh, the opportunity to stand up and be the one with the mic, people do tend to listen. And uh, so that's really cool is I've had the opportunity to, to share my story and influence people in a way that I feel like is really important just by being a person who's willing to take the mic and stand up and, and be that, that guy or gal.
1: <laughs> well, on that note, the topic that we're going to address today is suicide and mental health and suicide prevention, and all of which is involved in the advocacy work that you've been really focusing on, it sounds like almost exclusively for the last year, but for a while now. And I know you have a really personal connection to this issue and to the degree that you feel comfortable. Can you tell us what led you to this work? Yeah, absolutely. And and my degree of comfort
0: with this is pretty, pretty a lot. I, I don't have many secrets or things that I don't feel Comfortable sharing. It's actually something that's really, I'm really passionate about as far as like normalizing this stuff. And so talking about it is kind of the first step. So for me, being someone who is an advocate who also has a real personal connection, it's important for me to share that in order for me to feel like I'm kind of, you know, walking my walk. And so I grew up in a household with my father was um, mentally ill and struggled a great deal with depression. And when I was 10, he died by suicide. And so that was kind of my first real introduction to like what that looked like. And, you know, I'll be honest, it was obviously very traumatizing and very scary, but it also is so different. And, and people who haven't experienced death by suicide in their lives, but have experienced death in other ways can tell you how different that looks and and how different kind of that grief process is, and also just how people handle it. You know, my grandparents died of cancer and nobody suggested that someone was at fault. You know, that was normal that, you know, people die by illness. And so a lot of the stigma comes from this idea that that suicide's a choice, that people are intentionally harming those around them. And that's kind of how I was raised as far as my my father before he died by suicide was very anti-suicide and, and spoke about it in a way that was like, you know, only cowards do this. And actually, his father died by suicide in 1967. My grandfather was uh, the mayor of Springfield, Oregon, and he killed himself. And of course, at that time, That was not addressed in any way. It was reported as accidental and nobody really talked about it. And it all just kind of got washed over. And so that was the environment I grew up in. My family's all Catholic. So, of course, there's that religious piece that suggests that, you know, the lake of fire business, which definitely doesn't encourage a young girl who's just lost her father to feel any sort of thing except horrified about the whole experience. And so as I got older, I kind of started to have my own symptoms of mental health condition when I was in high school. And then ultimately when I was about 20, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as well as some other disorders, one of them being PTSD from the trauma that I experienced as a child, both in a household that ultimately was, was pretty abusive due because of the sickness and then losing a parent to suicide. And so when I started to get sick, I didn't really recognize it. And that's such a strange thing. And it's, again, part of the reason why I talk about this so often is that even people who are aware of the existence of these mental health conditions or challenges don't identify that in themselves. Because, again, there's this huge pile of, like, shame and fear and, you know, people not taking that seriously, or, you know, this, there's just this whole narrative around it that it's not acceptable. And so I attempted suicide uh, when I was 21 and ended up in the hospital and spent some time in the hospital and essentially just had to acknowledge like, Oh, this is a part of my life now. I remember when my psychiatrist told me that I had bipolar disorder, I said to him, Oh, That's like never going to go away. And so there was a lot of my early 20s in kind of this battle of like, I'm not doing this. I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be sick. I've already seen what that looks like. It's terrifying. And so ultimately, of course, I had to acknowledge that that was the case and that I wasn't able to drink or drug my way out of being ill and that it was going to require intervention from a doctor and i was probably going to have to accept that medication is part of my life um, and now at 42 i absolutely have and you know i live a, a life of challenges but i get along the best i can and i take my medication and i see my doctors and do all the things and have learned really that there's millions of people literally who live with these kind of conditions and survive it In 2011, unfortunately, I also lost my brother. So he was just almost 10 years older than me. As a matter of fact, I think that you met him. He did some work videotaping at, uh, at the Emerald City. But yeah, he struggled the same as me. He had bipolar disorder and he um, spent many, many years trying to get some way to get through that and find new avenues. And ultimately, I, I just say he just wore out just was tired of trying and doing all these things. And, you know, there's, there's many different factors when it comes to suicide, one of which is mental health conditions. That's common, but also really like, there's a lot of other factors that go into it and it's certainly, it's preventable. So my brother died in 2011. And then some years after that, I was introduced to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention which I was not aware even existed, but I was invited to a community event and I ended up volunteering for that event and then ultimately got sucked into the world of the suicide prevention stuff. And it's been really good. It's been really good. I've been doing this for about five years. Um, And as you said, for this last year during the pandemic, pretty exclusively doing this work and you know, just, I always say doing it for everyone and especially for me, because a lot of this stuff affects my life very personally. And, you know, I, I want this stuff to develop. I want research to be done. I want to have new opportunities for myself and for others. And, and so again, you know, this is preventable. So we just have to start normalizing the idea that suicide is just something that happens, that people die by suicide, just like people die in car accidents, just like people die of cancer. That's something that happens. And there's not shame. In reality, there's shame that our society has created. And so that for me is a huge thing that when you feel afraid to speak out about what you're going through, obviously, that's going to lead to you having a worse time trying to get through it. You know, you you don't hear a lot about people who have physical illnesses that choose to stay secret about them.
1: Even just in the short time that you and I have been communicating about the content of this podcast, you've already kind of revealed to me some of my assumptions and some of the the way that i think about suicide is is not very thoughtful like i've known people who've died by suicide but i haven't necessarily thought through the way that silence and stigma surround this issue so i do really appreciate that and when we first started talking about you being on the podcast and i asked you sort of well how does this issue connect to feminism and your answer was it was also very eye opening to me in terms of like linking it to the way that women experience different pressures and traumas that contribute to suicidal ideation. So do you mind just kind of making some of those connections more explicitly for us? Yeah, absolutely.
0: So statistically, what we know is that men die by suicide more often than women. And that's generally a result of the choice of lethal means. Women, however, attempt suicide more. So depending on the statistics that you find, it's between one and a half to three times more than men, both in adult and youth female suicide. And the issue with statistical analysis around attempts is that It's not recorded regularly, both because some places just literally don't have any mechanism for recording attempts, but mostly because we don't really know what's happening. So like for myself, when I attempted, I did have intervention by paramedics and I did spend time in the hospital. But if I hadn't told the people in the hospital that I had intentionally Ingested medication to die, they wouldn't have had any knowledge of that. So that wouldn't have been tracked as an attempt. It's just tracked as an overdose. And so, of course, you know, there's a lot of nuance in whether overdose is a suicide, you know, depending on how you're looking at it. But so what that means is we just don't know exactly statistically. But what we do know societally is that there's a narrative about women that we're weak and incompetent and so oddly enough statistics like we attempt suicide more than men but men complete suicide more is looked at as though we as women aren't good enough at it right we are they use terms like unsuccessful or failed suicides implying that women essentially are incompetent, that we aren't able to successfully kill ourselves. So there's this kind of bizarro narrative in the world. Of course, we have historically all of these accounts of women being looked at as though they are insane for a lot of different reasons. So one thing that we do know statistically that that Women attempt suicide often during um, menstruation or times of of, like hormonal distress, which obviously doesn't affect men. However, it just feeds into this narrative that women are out of control, that we can't control our emotions, you know, that we're attention seeking, that we're being dramatic, all these kinds of things. And so ultimately, if you're dealing with a conversation around, especially in young women today it's looked at like it's just kind of a a cry for help from girls who are over dramatic or can't control themselves and and it's it's bizarre in that we are here in this time and this is still the narrative and like i was doing some research specifically to get some examples for you about historically what this looks like. And one thing that is is sort of known, but not really to the extent, is that there was a long period of time in the 19th century and the 20th century where husbands were legally able to involuntarily commit their wives to sanitariums, to asylums, to mental institutions. So literally, women were put in asylums for doing things like there's a famous woman, her name was Elizabeth Packard. And in the late 1800s, she was put in an asylum by her husband who was a minister because she was curious about other religions and wanted to explore what a different church was talking about. And his fear was that she was going to make a stink about their religion and so he had her committed and she she was in a psychiatric facility for many many years before she was able to get out and even I found an account as as new as the 1960s where a man was able to have his wife committed to a mental institution for and I quote the patient not doing housework
1: Wow. And
0: that's real. Like that's a real thing. This is what, you know, women, I mean, if you look back at like as an example, this kind of, you know, outlandish, but the Salem witch trials, right? Like how many people who were women who were exhibiting, you know, who knows, could be exhibiting menstrual issues or, you know, Mm -hmm. like I said, hormonal Mm -hmm. issues. And those get categorized. I mean, when I was looking up the ways, the reasons why. Like masturbation is listed. Mm-hmm. Like, if your wife's mm-hmm. doing that, she's crazy. Put her in a hospital.
1: I just have to jump in here and mention that when I spoke with Sarah, the country singer on Zoom, she was sitting in front of a life size cardboard cutout of Dolly Parton, who sings a song called Daddy Come and Get Me.
0: In this mental institution,
1: that song is about a woman in an asylum. Who was committed by her husband, and it's actually based on a member of Dolly's own family. If you're not familiar with it, I recommend that you go listen and pay attention to the lyrics. They are really disturbing, but also really telling about this phenomenon.
0: He didn't love me from the start, but it's not. One of the other things I think that really affects women, which is just a societal kind of construct of the way we deal with gender in our world, is the fact that men die by suicide more than three and a half times women also leaves women to be the primary caregiver for their family without their husbands. And so even when you look at it from a standpoint of men die more like my mother, who was a person who had three children in the 80s and her husband just was gone in a day, like woke up the next day and I'm a single mom with three kids, Mm. like how do I do this? And so I think there's some challenges that come to women because of women's role in our culture. Mm -hmm. Suicide in the media and in art is experienced in such a strange way because, of course, we have everything from casual joking and, you know, gestures of a hand or, you know, people saying things like, oh, this day is so hard, I just would rather kill myself. You know, casual mentions of this all the way to these very explicit, very intense, dark, violent Acts, you know, so we as a society, we have such a weird experience with suicide because we either make it a very light, casual thing or a horrifying, dangerous thing that you would never want to discuss. So, where does that leave people who actually, like myself, are just living with suicidal ideation? Just a normal gal that has a mental health condition, just like 80 million people in America have. And happen to have this piece of suicidal ideation, which then is just different, but it's not, it's not portrayed in any normal way. And that's Mm -hmm. for me, that's a huge piece of this is, you know, we look at, you know, again, something like cancer, that feels like a very normal way to die. Like people just die of that. It's just sad and people grieve and that's it. And when it comes to suicide, we just put so much um, weight on this idea that it's this person's fault, that it's really difficult to unpack how normal it really is. And we, I mean, literally what is estimated in America right now for statistics that came out last year is 1.4 million people attempt suicide every year in the United States.
1: Wow. This is not. That's a huge number. Yeah,
0: We have, we lose 47,000 approximately people every year in the United States to suicide, which uh, means there's about 130 deaths per day. And it's actually the 10th leading cause of death for um, adults. It's the second leading cause of death for young people. From the ages 10 to 34, suicide is is the second leading cause of death.
1: This other narrative I think we hear is sort of like the Kurt Cobain version of the celebrity that's like almost has this fantasy constructed around it where like they were just this beautiful artistic soul who was like too sensitive for the world and, and then it becomes this this otherworldly angel figure. And <laughs> I just wonder if you can comment on on that a little bit because I imagine that probably comes up too.
0: Well, you know, definitely the media and especially, you know, famous people and suicide are something I think that you're right. I think that people are fascinated by and I think to some degree that and and Kurt Cobain's a great example of that because I think that in a really weird way you're right. Like it gave him some sort of cred that that's what he did. My issue with a lot of that media and famous people narrative is I don't know, Kurt Cobain might not be the best example of it, but people like Robin Williams, people like Anthony Bourdain, people like Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, we have this idea that somehow they were just awesome and their lives were awesome and everything was working really well and then they killed themselves. And the truth is, if you spoke with the family members of all of those men and many, many more, they would tell you that is not true. And I know that there was a lot of people who came out from families. You know, I know Robin Williams' family was like, look, he's been suffering for a long time. Like, this is something that he's been fighting for decades in order to, you know, get to the place where he was. One of the things that, again, coming back to this idea that it's a choice and, In the media, what they do, and this is something that just bothers me, is it's always about gone too soon. Robin Williams is in his 60s. Like, certainly he was a young person to die. But if you consider a person who was dealing with a devastating illness for 40 years, it's not really a gone too soon situation more that it's like a miracle that this man made it that long so like for my own personal experience my brother was 42 and he died and he was diagnosed with depression when he was 19 years old and so the idea that we got all of that time with him is more important to me than he was gone too soon and so i think that one of the things that we tend to do is put our own ideas on all of these characters, all of these people who are in the public eye. I know Kate Spade died right around the same time as Anthony Bourdain, and you don't hear much about her. I don't know if that is because she wasn't on TV or because she's a woman. I'm not really sure. But I do know that She was also a person who everyone was like, what, this lady's got this amazing career. She's like this wonderful designer. She's super rich, like how could this happen? And her family did come out and say, look, this is a person who has been sick and struggling forever. And so we all weren't so surprised as the public was. And so I think it's really personal for everyone and and families. And I think when we portray that in the media, we we allow the narrative to be written by the people who don't have any right to write it.
1: I've known you for a long time, and you've always identified as a feminist. Can you tell us about some of the feminist milestones in your life and what being a feminist means to you? So some of the kind of initial
0: and most important moments as a feminist identifying woman here in our country, the first time I ever knew what the word feminist of was and meant, even though I was very woman power and definitely pro-women and knew my power as a woman, was I was, I guess, about 20, 22, 23, I read a book that was written by a woman named Inga Musio called Cunt, and it is a very feminist book about some very specific acts of feminism that for me were like outrageous things like menstrual blood being something that you were not hiding anymore and is like not going to be shameful which of course as as with most girls that was never a consideration in my mind but after reading this book and recognizing like oh there's like a whole thing and feminist is like a good word that means good stuff not the other way around because you know I I'm growing up in a smaller community you know the idea of feminism was like women burning their bras and they're angry and they hate men and none of that resonated with me. but this woman talking about how we've put women down and how we've pitted women against each other in our culture all was very clear and resonated with me as a as a woman and I was I said earlier I, I am a vocalist and I, I perform in bands and have for a really long time and That, I think, is probably the place where I find myself kind of asserting myself as a feminist and being put into a place of having to kind of like stand up for myself as a woman. One example uh, is playing with mostly men all the time and being kind of discounted in my ability just because I'm a woman. When I went to college, the Women who were vocalists in the program were definitely looked down on as, you know, kind of silly girls that could sing and not necessarily as real musicians. Uh, Musicians have a tendency to categorize singers as something separate from that. And in that particular place, the women were the ones who were the singers. There weren't very many male vocalist um, majors. And... And then like open mics and events where I have to walk into a room with men who don't know me, I often find this feeling of like, oh, they are definitely thinking that I'm not going to know what I'm doing. They don't expect me to have any skills. And, you know, I am not a man, so I can't assume what it would look like, but I have never had the experience of any dude treating another man who's a musician that way. You just don't see that very often. And the other thing I think that also speaks really highly to this is when a woman sings in a blues band or a rock and roll band, which is what I do a lot, I get a lot of like, wow, you're so good which is like the same thing I hear about a lot of other women that are in the rock community, especially in my town where I know personally, is like, we're unicorns. Like we're this amazing thing that, oh, I can't believe that these silly girls can actually do that. And so in an odd way, I'm like discounted as a woman, but then also like this like weird backhanded compliment that comes on the other side of that where like, oh wait, she actually did nail this. She actually really can do this. And now we've been proven wrong, so we have to like make a thing about it. So it would be interesting to see what, what my life as a musician in the rock and roll world would be as a man, but what my interpretation is at this point is it would be a lot easier And it's a damn good thing that I'm a feminist and I have absolutely no problem standing up and saying, I am as good as you. I don't care how many penises you all have. You don't get to say that I can't do something because I'm a girl. So those were definitely the most, you know, forefront of my mind of like, how do I deal with feminism in my life?
1: And so how does this work, the work to destigmatize mental health, you know, especially talking about the way that this influences women, how does this connect to your own personal feminism? So
0: the first thing that I think is important to mention, and, and while there are men that I work with in the field of suicide prevention, it is very female focused. So like there are directors and CEOs of these organizations that are men. And then all of the people that I work with pretty much are women, women who are survivors, women like me, who um, are both survivors and living with mental health conditions. And so it does kind of exist in the dark as a feminist movement. And I don't think people realize that, nor do they really see that. But, but I believe that it is from the work that I've done and who I'm doing this work with. I thought about this a lot, like how did this specifically personally affect me as a woman and as a feminist? The thing that I locked into, which I think is really interesting and definitely was like the start of this for me when it comes to feminism, when I attempted suicide, I was working in a bank. And so I was working in an industry that is definitely run by men. Your CEOs of financial institutions, let's just say, are probably 95% men. So that's what I did. I worked as a loan officer in a bank and I had a sales manager at the time who was a man and I was working directly with a handful of men as a banker And it was when I very first started and got diagnosed with my mental health condition. And so I was in, in, you know, all sorts of, uncomfortable and out of control spaces. And I was working really, really hard to try and, you know, be positive and keep up with my work and make sure that it wasn't affecting what I was doing. But I was also like blackly depressed, (laughs) like signing loan documents and thinking like, I wish I could just kill myself instead of do this, like pretty seriously struggling with my mental illness and, you know, 21 years old. So struggling with just being a person. And when I uh, was working with my supervisor through this, I was pretty open with him about what I was dealing with. And it was all about, you know, we just want you to be okay and you know, it's fine. And then ultimately I was asked to come into his office and was told that my behavior was not acceptable and that I was being too um, negative and too much of a downer. And that I needed to apologize to all of my coworkers for my behavior being depressed and, you know, and not cheery, I guess, is really what the concern was. That statement was coming from a man who was like off the chain angry, like used to scream at us about our sales numbers. Like this was not a person who was fun or pleasant to be around at all. So the fact that he was the person who was in charge of telling me that I needed to be more cheery coming from a guy who was basically scary was like, oh, okay, sure. That seems really important that I would be pleasant. And that's what led me to my suicide attempt. And I realized that is not a conversation that would have been had with any of the men I work with. Can you imagine a professional man in a suit going to another man in a financial institution and saying you're not being cheery or nice enough and you need to apologize to your coworkers? And so even in that moment of, you know, I was already kind of thrown into this thing and I grew up in a household with a woman who I would say probably still would suggest that she's not a feminist because that's problematic for her and so i really grew up in opposition to her in my home i really didn't want to be a housewife i really didn't want to be subservient in any way and i was going to be all powerful woman and and so going into that part of my life, like I was not considering at all that I was at a disadvantage in that industry because I was a woman. I never really thought about it. It was like, it was fine. I worked with a bunch of dudes, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm good at this. And, you know, I'm doing as much sales as they are. Doesn't really matter what is, you know, what my gender is. But this was obviously a huge awakening for me to realize, oh, I'm being treated differently because I'm a woman, because no man would ever be called out for that. It's just not a thing. So that was my personal experience with directly relating to feminism and suicide. And I think that it speaks to, you know, across the board, something that still happens. I mean, going back to this idea that, you know, we're dramatic and we can't control ourselves and, you know, we're just attention seekers and, you know, that somehow women are frail, it is definitely not a helpful narrative around anything. And especially when it comes to mental health. I often say mental is kind of a stupid made-up word that really means brain. And a brain is a physical thing that lives in my physical body. So the fact that my brain does not produce what it needs to produce for me to have a consistent mood is a physical ailment. When you, like, what we know about brains, the fact that I have PTSD, like, that's not... An emotional disorder. It changes your brain when you experience trauma. Science can show exactly what it does to your brain. And so we know now, based on science, that this is actually a physical ailment, but we still call it mental because somehow we cannot get over the fact that this is different than physical illness. And it's in my personal opinion, it's nonsense. Like it's ridiculous that we would suggest that it's something separate from physical health.
1: Well, you referenced this a little bit in your last answer, but is there anything else that you would like to talk about related to some of the Uh, recent emerging research and brain science that's being done in the area of suicide prevention? So one of the things that's cool is
0: the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is the organization or one of the organizations that I advocate for. And they are actually the number one privately funded research organization in the country. So they, a lot of what we raise money for, for AFSP is to do research. And that research, is incredible. Every year, we just know more and more about it. And so some of the things that we're studying, because suicide is so multifaceted, we don't really know what causes it. There's not really one thing that causes it. And so a lot of the research that we're doing is determining kind of what makes a person be suicidal versus a person who just has a mental health condition that's not suicidal. So some of that is looking at, you know, psychological studies where they're actually, you know, interviewing people. And some of that is just brain science. Some of it is really looking at like, is there a difference um, in this person's brain? And there's just a whole bunch of evidence now that says, yeah. We know that brains work differently when they've been traumatized, when they are deprived of serotonin, when, you know, these kinds of things happen. And so that research is just continuing, you know, regularly to get more and more information because of course, like anything, it's hard to combat when you don't really know what's happening. And then the other side of this, which is very exciting for me and and others who are living with this stuff is research around medication and treatment. So one of the things that is fairly new as far as a diagnosis for psychiatric illnesses is PMDD. So it's a post-menstrual dysphoric disorder. So that is like... PMS on crack, right? Like it's like the worst. So it's a hormone disorder. And in like similar to postpartum depression, it can be very severe and it generally is linked directly to your hormones. So you're suffering from that experience every month, you know, regularly, but maybe only a week of the month. And so that is looking at like, okay, so now we know this exists as its own separate thing. How do we treat it? And so there's been research, they're now looking into the possibility of using antidepressants and um, serotonin products that would make, you know, hopefully adjust those hormones. But the hormones versus brain chemistry is, you know, very connected, but different in the same way. And so a lot of that is kind of sussing out, like, can this be used for that as well? And like some of the medication that I use for bipolar disorder is like seizure medication. So, you know, there's a lot of different things that cross over, but one thing, and actually two things, because you are going to ask me a question about this. One thing that's very exciting right now in medical research with suicide is the drug ketamine and the use of ketamine in suicidal ideation. So Ketamine has a long history, starting with as a tranquilizer for animals and moving through the party kid community of being a kind of a party drug and so kind of got a bad rap and people weren't really looking at ketamine as something to work with. And what they've learned is that it's actually very effective in stopping the immediate urge for suicide. So what they say in in our world is putting time between the person and the the means. So the way that they're gonna die by suicide um, is the most effective way to stop suicide. What we know about it is that the urge to take your life is fairly short lived and that will resolve. And then maybe yes, you'd have that urge again later, whatever, but if we can intervene in a moment where you are actively like, give me something to kill myself with, we can stop that. And what they've learned with ketamine, which is so interesting and is cool, and they're actually already using it in some hospitals, is that by administering ketamine in that moment, it actually turns off the receptors in your brain that want to kill themselves like it just shuts you down. And so it gives you about a 24 to 48 hour window where this person is no longer suicidal and allows a person to be admitted to a hospital or gotten into treatment or something like that. So that's very exciting and new to be able to say, we just have something we can literally just like inject a person with, and in 15 minutes, they don't wanna kill themselves. Now. That's, again, something that would be used as a intervention, not as something that would be regular medication for somebody. And this intervention would be temporary. So there would still need to be work into getting somebody safe and and getting help for them. But overall, it could make a lot of difference to stop people who are actively suicidal. And then the other piece of this, which again, falls under the category of Drugs that we just don't really wanna talk about or think about as, as effective in any way other than they are a problem. And so here in Oregon, we recently passed a law, I know that this has happened in other places in the country, but that legalizes psilocybin as something that can be researched and used in treating mental health conditions, specifically depression. And what I know about the research around psilocybin is kind of the same, which is it's looking real promising. There's a lot of things that are really helping people. They are treating people with microdosing and that's kind of a new thing, but they say that it can really affect the depression and kind of in a very different way than antidepressants. So it gives you kind of a a different clarity of mind um, and kind of positive outlook a little bit. And I, I do have not my own personal experience, but I have experience with a very, very close friend of mine who started microdosing. He is a guy who has lived with a mental health condition for his entire adult life. He, like myself, has been in psychiatric appointments after appointments and medications and different doctors and, you know, working, working, trying to figure out how to, you know, be successful and how to not um, have these feelings of of suicidal ideation. And he started microdosing um, with psilocybin and after about six months, his psychiatrist literally told him, I don't think you need me anymore. He was taking off all of his psychiatric medication. He only microdoses on psilocybin every day. He takes like a super small amount that's weighed out exactly every day, just like regular medication. And he's literally doesn't see his psychiatrist anymore because she was like, in all the time that I've been working with you, I've never seen you so well-adjusted and happy. And it's not from what I'm doing, it's obviously from what you're doing. So go to it, do your thing.
1: Well, I'm sure Pfizer loves that. Oh, I'm sure they're gonna figure out a
0: way to make fake psilocybin here any moment.
1: Oh, I'm I'm sure they will. I'm sure they're already working on it. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the policy work that you are doing and I know that's been a big focus not only being an advocate in the community but also being an advocate at at the legislative level. So, what developments are you hoping to see in the future?
0: In a small capacity here in Oregon, which I've been doing a lot of advocacy work here with legislators, so exciting for us in our little pond here. We had a bill passed last year called Addie's Act that is requiring people in schools for children to be able to have mental health days so that they can be off from school as a like a sick day, but for mental health specifically. And it puts some funding into schools to actually get positions for mental health care workers in schools. We also are working on a bill that, and and this is something that blew my mind when I found this out, when I started working in the prevention world. People who are in positions in medical and mental health, like working professionals, are not required to be educated about suicide. If you go to a doctor, even a psychiatric doctor, They may never have had any education about suicide or suicide prevention, other than maybe the eight hours of one class in medical school, whenever, without ever needing to do that again. If you look at people that are in roles, for my opinion, that should absolutely have that, so firefighters, police, EMTs, even to say teachers, counselors and schools, None of those people are required to do any sort of suicide intervention, treatment, any of the, like, they don't have to know about it at all. So you might be talking to a person in a hospital about your suicide attempt who has no idea what you're talking about, and that's accepted. That's the way that our system works. So right now in Oregon, we are trying to pass a bill that will mandate suicide prevention, continued education for people in behavioral health as a requirement that they have to learn about it. So again, mind blown that that's not even a thing. And so there's a lot of movement in legislation to try to figure out like, how do we make that be a thing? How can we make them do it? Because It's really important that they know. And then on a national level, there's a few different things, but the number one thing that I think is the most exciting about the suicide prevention world right now in the United States is that we have recently passed a law that will change the National Suicide Lifeline phone number from 1-800-273-8255 to 988. So it will be like 911. It will be an emergency number programmed into your cell phone. When you go, it will have the options of your personal emergency contact, 911 or 988 for a mental health crisis. So instead of calling police to intervene on a mental health crisis that we already, as I just stated, know they don't have the information to handle. And usually, more often than not, when police intervene, with people who have mental health conditions, I'm sure you've seen this, those people are victimized by the police. They end up being shot because police don't know how to deal with somebody who is acting out in a way that feels scary to them. That's, you know, a person who is suicidal, who has a gun is very, very unlikely to shoot someone else. Like that's not what their intent is. And yet people like that die by suicide or by you know suicide by cop because police officers are terrified that they're going to get shot because their job is to protect themselves and other police officers not the person who has the gun right so the the 980 essentially replaces this long number that nobody can remember and makes it so that it is going to be funded nationally the FCC has now started actually rolling this out so by mid 2022 we should see this on everything so you've got a new option for mental health that number then goes directly to a crisis counselor who is educated around how to handle a mental health crisis And is educated about how to handle a suicidal crisis or intervention. And so that to me right now is the most exciting thing that we're doing. Because again, coming back to this conversation about stigma and, you know, kind of normalizing this as like a thing that exists in our world. It's just a thing. Like people get in a car accident and they call 911. People come home to their family member who's taking pills. They call 988.
1: 988 and they get that intervention that they need. And how can listeners take action around this issue?
0: Well, one thing that I always say is if you are a person who is interested in following legislation, I know in Oregon, there is a website for the legislation and it's like a government website. And I'm sure that it exists probably in all states. And you can actually search through bills to see what is happening. There's always a bunch of different things. I think right now there's like just in the state of Oregon, there's like 14 bills that address mental health things. So if you are somebody who's privy to that or interested in that. Certainly communicating with your legislators is big. I, one of the things that we do as advocates, which is probably like the number one thing that I do is putting a face to this. So when I go and sit with senators and I have with senators in Washington and senators here in Oregon, what I'm doing is saying, hey, when you are voting on this bill, I want my face and my family to be in the forefront of your mind. I don't want this to be a random idea. I don't want this to be a concept of suicidal people. I want you to know I'm a real person and I have real suicidal ideation and I have lost people in my life to suicide who were also real people. And so I think being able to just say like, hey, I am a person and I care about this and I have experience with this is important. So if you live in a community, I would say, you know, write your congressmen, write your senators, send them a letter. Hey, this is important to me. I want you to be looking at improving things for people dealing with mental health and suicide issues. Like I think constituents of those kinds of leaders are the driving force. One thing that's a really direct way that you could get involved and makes this really easy if you want is through AFSP. So if you go to AFSP.org, there's an option to get involved and there's a button that says become a field advocate. And a field advocate essentially is you just being hooked in, to a system that allows you to know when to email your legislators and for what reason. And then it also is beautiful because it generates based on your address. So you don't have to write anything. You don't have to know even who your legislators are. You just have to tell AFSP, this is my name, this is my email, this is my address, and they will send you Pre-written emails, pre-addressed to your legislators for things that are current issues happening. So afsp.org, become an advocate, and then you all you have to do is sign up, and it's usually like one email a month, maybe. So it's a pretty uh, limited amount of work for uh, what could be a really big game. The kind of principle behind it is if you're, as an example here in my community, if you're Peter DeFazio, Congressman for Eugene, Oregon, and you get a letter, an email from me that says, hey, Pete, I really want you to pay attention to this, that's a thing. But if Pete gets 500 letters in the same day, that say, hey, we care about this, we want you to do something. That certainly is gonna get bumped up to the top of his list of things that he knows his constituents care about. And so really it's just about numbers. Right now, I think we have close to 20,000 advocates in the country, so we can always use more people doing that. And then the other thing, and this sucks because pandemic screws everything up right now, but in almost every large community in the country, there is an out of the darkness community walk during the fall. So if you go to AFSP, you can look up the out of the darkness and you can join in and that's a fundraising community walk. I mean, there's probably one in every major city that you could even go to.
1: Great. Well, I will make sure to have all of those opportunities linked in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you would like listeners to know? Yeah, there is. So with all of this said and
0: all of these conversations about prevention and intervention and, you know, stopping this and lowering these numbers and getting support around this and, again, research to to find out what's going on, one of the things that I think is really important is the conversation around who is left when people do die by suicide and there's always a lot of shame and blame and fear and guilt that they could have done something or should have done something or you know didn't see but they should have seen you know i I, you hear that in all sorts of different versions from people who who have family or friends who die by suicide and the thing that i think is really important is to recognize that there's only so much that we can do as loved ones and we can support people and we can ask the good questions and we can take them to their doctor's appointments and we can be there for them. But people die by suicide, even people who, like my brother, who are actively involved in treatment who knew that they had family and friends that he had that supported him, who was sober and you know, who had a partner and who had all of these things going for him and had done all of this work, the reality is that when it came down to it, the pain and the fear that he was never, ever going to get better and that he was gonna have to do this every day of his life, which is legitimate, and possibly true that he would have he just couldn't do it and the people around him despite the fact that we knew that he was suicidal that he was very vocal about that he had been suicidal for more than 20 years we all did the best that we could but it's really hard to lock a grown man in a closet it's really hard to you know be with somebody every single second of every day he was a person who had had lethal means removed from his home but He lives in America where lethal means are available in any store. And so when it comes down to that, if you're a person out there who has lost someone to suicide, what I always say is, if love was enough to keep them here, they would still be here. So you loved the heck out of them. (laughs) You did all of the things that you knew to do. And maybe you didn't know what to do, and maybe you didn't do any of the things because you were scared, or you didn't know, or you didn't have the education around it. But regardless of all of those things, people die by suicide because they're in pain and they don't want to be in pain anymore, and that isn't anyone's fault. Not them not their wives or husbands, not their kids, not anyone. We can do everything we can to try to create an opportunity for people to get help for change in this systemic mechanism we have in our country to kind of overlook people with mental health issues or discount them as, you know, garbage people. But it doesn't mean that we're going to save everybody. It's just the reality. And so it comes down to it i do have a lot of survivors who say to me i wish i would have done something else what should i have done and the answer is nothing you did all of the things and that's a really really hard thing to have to accept but if you're a person who has gone through suicide loss you know that there is no good that comes from feeling shamed about your behavior. And so know that the people in your life who end their lives, don't do it because they weren't loved. They don't do it because they weren't supported. They do it because they are so desperate to get out of pain and they don't believe that there's any other way.
1: I wanna revisit something Sarah said toward the end of our interview there is no good that comes from feeling shame about your behavior. This links back to something I touched on at the beginning of the episode, which is that suicide, like any other human event or condition with stigma attached to it, like addiction or abuse, can only really be dealt with in the light of day. So being secretive and feeling bad and not talking about it is the opposite of what we need to do if we wanna make a difference. I want to thank you all for listening and for taking this episode out into the world with you. And most of all, I want to thank Sarah for being so open and vulnerable with her story and so generous with her advocacy. I hope that doing this episode together makes a difference and listeners, I would love to know what you think. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. As always, listeners, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This is Loudspeaker.